Welcome to the Rogue Journal Club, where we tear studies apart so you don't have to. The Rogue Journal Club is a Shio Sophia production, featuring long-form discussions of peer-reviewed studies, published in academic journals, and their connections to society. I'm Adrian, And I'm Gina. We'll be your hosts. A journal club is when academics at universities get together to talk about papers. But we've gone rogue. We're going to do Journal Club our way. Join us. Today, we discuss the open access article, The Effect of Gluten in Adolescents and Young Adults with Gastrointestinal Symptoms, a Blinded, Randomized Crossover Trial. The article appears in a 2022 issue of Elementary Pharmacology and Therapeutics. The first author is Kiesely Crawley. Let's go. Welcome back to Rogue Journal Club, everybody. And uh, let's see, I'll introduce the paper this time, since this was my this was my doing, the suggestion of this one. So we're going to talk about something different. We have been kind of hammering on free speech related things for the last since we started the show. So um, we're going to take a break and talk about another topic that's interesting to people, which is what we eat. Yay. So um, you may have heard of gluten. Um, <laughs> if you haven't, you might be living under a rock. So move the rock out of the way and you might see gluten everywhere. So gluten, uh, is a protein that's in wheat. If you have not heard of it, I'll do the little explanation. So gluten is uh, a protein that's found in wheat and some people have a disorder called celiac disease where they are not able to tolerate gluten. It flattens the cilia in their intestine. It's, part, it's like the allergic reaction uh, and they get very unpleasant bowel symptoms from that. Uh, by the way, this episode will involve probably some discussion of pooping. So if you are not okay with that, you can, you can move on. Um, but you know, we're all humans. Everybody poops. There's a book about it. You can check it out at your public library. Um, it's very scientific. Um, everybody poops. There's, yes. a, there's a quote from this episode. Everybody poops. Yes. Yeah. Citation, that person who wrote the book, I have no idea their <laughs> name, but brilliant biological uh, scientific writing there anyway. So gluten, uh, is also um, something that people can have like a proper allergy to where they get like anaphylaxis, like where their throat closes up and it's bad stuff and you have to get an EpiPen and, and that kind of thing. So, um, or you get like a rash or something like that. Then there's another category of people who are just claiming that when they don't eat gluten, they feel better. So the study is about the third group. So this is excluding celiac, excluding like true allergy. And then there's this other group and they call it non-celiac gluten sensitivity. So the study is called the effect of gluten in adolescents and young adults with gastrointestinal symptoms, a blinded randomized crossover trial. It is by Cecily Crawley and other people, and it was in Denmark and uh, at a children's hospital. And they 
they looked at people who are, I think between like 16 and 25, it was like the mean age was like 20. So these are young people, all, all, almost all, I think all but one in the final population were female. So I personally found this uh, topic interesting because I know a lot of people who have this supposed non-celiac gluten sensitivity. And I myself at one point in my life thought that I had this, but now I pretty much live on wheat and all is well. So I clearly didn't have it. Um, but I, I, suspect, I suspected that there's more to it than meets the eye. And when I saw this, I was excited because it was actually a blinded randomized trial, which you don't see very often with diets because uh, it's very hard to do. Um, so they came up with a way to do it and I thought it was pretty clever. Um, and they, they did seem to try to make it as big a sample size as they could, but obviously it's pretty tough to, to do a good study with so many variables you have to have pretty strict inclusion criteria for who you include so yeah I, sample size ended up being 32 if i remember correctly and it was that is it that is a tiny 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 gloop tiny gloop yeah it's a tiny gloop is what it is it's a tiny group yeah and it's funny because they started with 1200 people i think that was their initial uh, sampling population. It was, uh, I'm trying to find the, yeah, in the, um, in the figure one, they, they show it because it was, um, from the Danish national birth cohort with residency in the Island of Funen, which I don't think I'm pronouncing, pronouncing that right. Um, oh yeah. They actually started with 7,000 people and they, and they had to screen them for all of their criteria because when you're studying this, like non, non-celiac, non-allergic gluten sensitivity, they also wanted to rule out autoimmune diseases and IBS so that they could actually look at the effects of gluten in on healthy people, uh, like otherwise healthy people who just claim that like it makes them feel better because that's a big, that's a big group of people. I know a lot of people that like, you know, they read a book about gluten and then they're like, I'm going to avoid gluten and then I feel great. And then they buy all the gluten-free food products and they're not actually that healthy. Those, those gluten-free breads no. and cookies and crackers. Yeah. They have a lot of fat in them and they're very low in fiber and uh, you need to add a lot of stuff to them to make them stick together. That's not actually that nutritious. It's not like it's bad. It doesn't like hurt you, but it's, it's not nutrient dense. So um, by the way, I hope you did not hear my cell phone going off just then, but I didn't know okay. <laughs> my, my, my screaming ringtone went off just then and it was, that's why i had to grab my phone to turn oh it. oh like an actual scream yeah no my 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 uh, ringtone is a goat scream so it's <laughs> that's <laughs> hilarious it just started it just started screaming and it's just off camera here and i thought it was uh, like but it, it i'm glad it didn't uh although we'll see when i go back to edit the, edit the audio later. yeah goat screaming that's great I love it. Fantastic idea for a ringtone. <laughs> um, I like it. I mean, I don't miss it when it rings. Yeah, no, that's very true. <laughs> you makes you want to answer it immediately. <laughs> yep. So do we want to, um, do we want to read the abstract at all? Or do we yeah, do I'll read the abstract. I know I'm kind of like jumping in very far, so I'll, I'll, I'll read it, I guess. So, um, the this popularity weird abstracts where they do like 
background aims methods and yeah that's true uh it's it's kind of handy a lot of medical papers do this because i, I think they're they're counting on uh, i think doctors are incredibly busy and they just go straight to the results and conclusion yeah um but yeah this um oh so this is published in the uh elementary pharmacology and therapeutics elementary meaning your digestive system like a l i um, oh, well, I, I'm, yeah. I'm glad you knew that because I had no idea. Yeah, it's called the alimentary canal. That's like an older what, dis description for it. Um, you learn something new every day. Yeah. So, um, and it was published very recently, more like, oh, uh, not super recently, I guess, March 29th, 2022. So it's this year. I tried to find something recent. So, uh, the popularity of the gluten-free diet and sales of gluten-free food products have increased immensely uh, to investigate. Their aims are to investigate whether gluten induces gastrointestinal symptoms measured by self-reported questionnaires, as well as mental health symptoms in adolescents from a population-based cohort. So they have their methods. Um, they had 273 eligible participants that were recruited from a population-based cohort of 1,266 adolescents. And they, had, and they had to have at least four gastrointestinal symptoms. So then phase one of the trial was uh, 54 adolescents that had met that criteria out of the 273, they kept whittling it down. Uh, was a run-in phase where the participants lived gluten-free for two weeks. If they improved, they continued to phase two, and 33 of them did. A blinded randomized control crossover trial. So this is a type of medical study where you compare the thing you're testing to a placebo. Participants were blindly randomized, either to start with seven days of gluten, eating two granola bars containing 10 grams of gluten, or to seven days on placebo eating two granola bars without gluten, followed by the reverse, and separated by a seven-day washout period. The effects of the intervention on GI symptoms and mental health were assessed. In total, 54 out of 273 participants entered the run-in phase. 35 were eligible for randomization. That just means put in the two groups. A total of 33 were randomized. 32 completed the trial, so they had some dropouts. The median age was 20.3 years and uh, 32 out of 33 were females. Compared with the placebo, gluten did not induce gastrointestinal symptoms, so they had a negative result. The difference in the average uh, score yeah. for, yeah, they had a scoring scale where people, the participants like reported their symptoms. We, they, uh, nor did we find a difference in the outcomes measuring mental health. So their conclusion was compared to placebo, adding gluten to the diet did not induce gastrointestinal symptoms and it did not worsen mental health in, a, in adolescents recruited from this cohort. So yeah. I thought this was very interesting because it was a negative result and they're, you know, the, I mean, resu the results on this are mixed. They're, it's not really cut and dry. Well, when I read from this study, I, I immediately recalled something that my father would always say, you know, it's all in your mind. Mm, it's all mm -hmm. in your mind. <laughs> yeah. Sorry about that. I just had to spit something out. So I guess oh. that's on the recording wow. now. <laughs> but um, no, for, for VAS, I just went to go find the, um, I went to go find what the, what the acronym stands for. 
it's uh, in section 2.3, symptoms were assessed on a 100 millimeter visual analog scale, uh, one to 100, where one indicated no symptoms and 100 represented the worst symptoms ever experienced. Mm. Uh, questionnaire yes. included 10 questions about abdominal pain, bloating. I don't know what this is, so. Oh, I'm, yeah, like, I didn't know what that bore, was either. Bore, bore, guinea. Yeah, I got to look that up. Where is that again? Uh, oh, yeah, there it is. B-O-R-B-O-R-Y-G-M-I, which I have no idea what that is. I'm going to look that up because that's a fun word. It means... Diarrhea, flatulence, constipation. Oh, we all know what this is. It's when your belly rumbles because gas moves around inside of it. <laughs> it's that rrrr thing. <laughs> So that's Bor- the name for that. <laughs> yeah, Borborborgamus. Okay. Yeah. Um, there's another one they have here that's dyspepsia. Yeah, that's um, I think stomach, uh, stomach growling or stomach. It's more, it's more stomach rather than intestines. Okay. Um, incomplete evacuation after a toilet visit and burping, which. <laughs> yeah. So see, I told you pooping, (laughs) everybody poops. Okay. So the kind of study this was, I'm going to give a little bit of an introduction to what a double blind, I can't talk a double blind placebo controlled crossover study is. So double blind means that the participants and the researchers don't know what group the, the people are in. So they don't, they don't know if they're giving the, the kids gluten bars or no gluten bars. They had, I guess in the study, they had a, um, the, univer- the hospital kitchen baked these special granola bars for them and they packaged them in, in uh, red or white. And so they weren't labeled, they were just color coded so that they knew, the researchers knew they were different, but they didn't know which one was gluten and which one wasn't and neither did the participants. So that's double blind, that's pretty easy. Um, and then the, the crossover part is interesting. So I, I will, uh, I'll read a good explanation that I found for it. So, so rather than, this is done when um, you want to let both groups of people have uh, some exposure to the treatment. Um, sometimes it's because of ethical reasons. Like if, the, if leaving the disorder untreated is actually harming the patient in some small way, than they do this kind of thing. So rather than let one arm of such a study get worse or die, this is what they actually said. Yeah, let's not do that. Um, One can be more fair. Yeah, right. I know the internet, what are you gonna do? Um, (laughs) One can be more fair to participants by giving some of them a course of the treatment, like of the true treatment, followed by a course of the placebo and then observe what happens. And so you're basically uh, giving them uh, the gluten challenge and then taking it away, but then doing the opposite with the other group. So at the end, you're able to actually see it's, it's not perfectly symmetrical because sometimes the order does actually matter. Um, but in this case, they kind of, uh, let that go. And I'm not sure why they might say that in the end. And I forgot if they did, Hmm. but, um, yeah, I, I didn't see why they did it in this, um, particular case um 
couldn't do. Yeah, they didn't necessarily say why they did that kind of that kind of trial where they did, you know, placebo then gluten or gluten then placebo or just why not just do gluten in one and placebo in the other. Um, though I could see it from the ethical kinds of things and like a lot of that, a lot of the ethics stuff comes from um, things like the Belmont report when it comes to human to human subjects research. So like yeah. Written for those unfamiliar, the um, the Belmont report was created in seventies after the horrors of human experimentation from World War II, and in the U.S., the uh, Tuskegee, Tuskegee um, syphilis study, yeah, um, which basically treated in in both cases people were treated horribly, and when they were used as subjects of scientific research, and so the Belmont report laid out the ethics of doing research with human subjects be it um be it medical or um or social science related research um stuff here so um in the u.s it's it's the university's um institutional review boards that handle making sure that those are that those ethics are met whenever you do research along with different medical boards at universities for medicine related stuff but abroad it depends upon the country i don't know which which entities are in which countries, which they, I think they listed it in the ethics and approval section, but but um, those those kinds of things are why we have some of the ethical things that we do with respect to research trials that involve human subjects. Yeah. Yeah, it's important stuff. So I think in with study designs like this, they may sometimes just say, well, we know it's never perfectly symmetrical, but it gets you close enough because we can't we can't be more rigorous because otherwise we'd be harming patients. I think most people are like, yeah. okay with that. So, yeah. Um, and, and I mean, when yeah. they talk about the dropouts in here, cause they did say they had a couple of people who just dropped out um, for their own reasons or unknown reasons. I mean, one of the things that was in the Belmont report that leads to that happening is um, it's a requirement of all research studies that involve human subjects to respect the autonomy of the individual um, making the decision. So if, if a participant decides I don't want to be part of this anymore, they have the right to pull out at any particular moment for any reason or no reason at all. Um, yep. So, yeah, and that's one of the reasons why it can be hard. So I know that um, one of the things that novices tend to do when they look at research papers is look at the sample size, and that's important. The sample size super duper matters, but with medical studies or you know, so the, the, the field of study matters for what's a realistic sample size to get a hold of. So 33 is very small, but not for a medical study like this, something that's this complicated and expensive to do when you basically are having people, you, had, you have to make these special granola bars, you have to draw blood, you have to follow them. Like, so there's people that are salaried uh, professionals that have to meet with them. They all met with a dietitian. So these studies are very expensive to do. Oh, yeah. um, so getting the sample size up, like if this was a hundred or 200 people or something, it would have been very expensive and potentially unwieldy. So it just, it depends on the facility. It depends on the resources. Um, and sometimes it just depends on the study design. So if you have your sample size really, really big, that sacrifices rigor in your study design in other ways. So it makes it harder to do really complicated things that give you really robust results. Um, but then when you do small sample sizes, you can do a lot of cool stuff and ask a lot of really good questions and drill down to the details, but then you can't 
then it's not scalable. So, right. So when you think about when you see a study and, oh my God, the sample size was only 10 people, look at what they actually had to do. And that might determine whether 10 is reasonable or not. Yeah. So, I mean, this is, this is not um, like, this is, this is a good sample size for a study like <coughs> this, where you're talking about something that for one thing has had so many factors because you want people who don't have celiac, but are claiming they are gluten sensitive um, or, you know, or, or, and also you want kids at the same time effectively, which is a whole other ethics thing to do any research with children because they technically don't have, if you go by the Belmont report, kids don't have the, um, don't have the ability to consent. Um, although in this case they would, because a lot of them are past the age of majority when you're talking about, you know, they're, they're all older than 18, it seems yeah. so to be able to consent for themselves legally. Um, yeah, they're adolescents, but they, they call them adolescents. But if I think if they're over 18, then they're just like, I well, don't that's know. In, that's in the U S I don't know what the age of majority is in Europe. Oh, okay. Maybe so. It may be 21 in Europe. Um, in which mm. case they'd all be under age and their parents would be, you know, granting the informed consent for them. Um, yeah. Hmm. But yeah, they didn't there's, say there's that. Things, there's things like that. So, but this is not to say that there isn't studies where the sample size is ridiculously small. Like um, I, I talked about it on my channel, the the PNAS study where they did the the thing with the um the masks, the the mask hacks for your face. Oh, I didn't know about that one. <laughs> I, yeah, no, that was a grand total of four. Oh yeah, you can't learn a whole. I mean, that's barely that's barely enough to like have the triangulation of like. <laughs> Yeah. yeah, I mean, that, that was the mask fit hacks. That was the one where they determined that pantyhose was the best fit hack for your face mask to protect you from COVID. Pantyhose? What? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's a video on the, it's a video on the channel. I, I can share. Yeah, I, can, I you know what? I think I sort of remember that. I have not admittedly watched all of your videos because you have a lot of them so I, I'm, I'm closing in on 200 videos actually. oh my god i'm the worst <laughs> i'm like the worst co-host ever i've seen maybe 10 of your videos this is not terrible don't worry about it, worry about it. I've, I've been as busy as i can be given everything else going on but um but yeah it, it like that sample size of four for the fit hacks thing was wildly inappropriate and i'm amazed it was published in PNAS of all places the proceedings of the national academy of sciences for those who don't know um but this yeah. is totally appropriate. And actually, I was I was just looking at the little bit of funding information on the side next to the abstract. And it's like, they're actually acknowledging because a whole bunch of groups actually donated time and funding. Like, um, yeah, like the uh, Department of Clinical Immunology at Odense University Hospital covered the cost of the celiac screening. Oh, wow. Yeah, so those lab things are not, they're not trivial to like, to measure, um, I have to look at what they actually tested because it was, it's cool. It's interesting. And I think I understood what, uh, in general, what a lot of it is. Okay. Let's see. I'm trying to find it now. Not, <laughs> not questionnaires, the, the blood tests that they had to do. Um, oh, participants. There we go. The criterion for inclusion in the present study was more than three gastrointestinal symptoms and normal values of tissue transglutaminase and total IgA to exclude celiac disease. So tissue transglutaminase is the enzyme that is supposed to break down gluten. 
And then IgA is the immunoglobulin. So it's the immune molecule that reacts to the gluten. So yeah, I'm pretty sure that's what those are. And those are not trivial tests to do. Um, I think the tissue transglutaminase is like a, like a swab. It might be like a, hold on a minute. Yeah, we're going to have to do some live looking on the fly because I know this is terrible. Experts. <laughs> yeah, this is not my field. I did a, a bachelor's in nutrition, so that doesn't count. I feel like, especially because it was like <laughs> 20 years ago. Um, and I w- I've been like personally interested in this topic. And I think I've even had this test done years ago. Uh, okay. Dirt, dirt, dirt. It doesn't say how it's done. Oh, they look in the blood. Oh, so they look, all right. So they're looking for anti, oh, so they're looking for antibodies against the transglutaminase enzyme. Okay. So yeah, these antibodies may mistakenly attack an enzyme or a protein in your intestines called tissue transglutaminase, which normally repairs and heals cells. Okay. So it doesn't have anything to do with gluten. I was totally wrong. That's why these antibodies are also called anti-tissue transglutaminase antibodies. So they are, they are, it's an enzyme that normally fixes your cells. And if your immune system is destroying it, then it can't do that. Oh, yeah. So, so it must. And so then the gluten seems to trigger the immune system to, to start, uh, destroying that enzyme so then it can't actually heal the cells. That's very okay. interesting. I had no idea that that was how that actually worked. That is interesting and, and yeah. strange at the same time. Yeah. So they take a blood sample and then they have to test it. I bet probably, oh, they probably do it with like ELISA, which is that like uh, antibody binding test that actually we have it for COVID also. Mm-hmm. Um, it's like a color change reaction, I think. Right. So, yeah, but anyway, doing that for like hundreds of people would be really expensive is the point that I'm trying to make. Cause that's like a doctor's visits, laboratory stuff, all that stuff costs a lot. <laughs> so whenever you hear yourself being like, why don't they just, just remember everything is super expensive in medicine, you know, because if you go to the doctor, it's expensive. So the medical research is really expensive too. Um, so onward to back to the paragraph. Okay, so they had a total of 273 people that passed that screening. Um, and then they also had to test them for a wheat allergy mm. and then also known IBD and they had to be excluded if they were currently on antibiotics, which also messes with your gut. So that would be a, that yeah. would be a confounding factor. Oh yeah. Um, so there's a lot of people that got dropped. And <laughs> Yeah, it went from 7,000 people to 32 by the end. <laughs> so it was a big, uh, uh, it, it was a big funnel, that's for sure. And then they asked them these questionnaires. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'll go yeah. through their handy dandy flow chart. So they whittled it down to 33 people. Then they split them into groups and they gave one group. So they were all given a gluten-free diet. They had to follow the gluten-free diet through the entire um, study. 
So that was like zeroing out the gluten level. And they had a dietitian, I guess, follow them. And it was kind of cute. They, they had like a text reminder to follow their gluten-free diet. And they were allowed to text the dietitian to ask them questions. So it was like a way to make sure that compliance was super high. Right. Um, so that's pretty cool. Or try uh, to make sure at any rate, because I, I did notice that they, they were relying on, um, they were lot, were essentially relying on the honor system that the, that the participants actually followed everything. Yeah. Is a confounder. Yeah. It's really tough. Um, when I was a, a student, they had a lab, uh, I guess it's at Penn state. It might just probably still there. It's a pretty well-known lab where they do, um, studies like this, but they provide the food. So that makes the cost go way, way up where everything you eat comes from the study kitchen. You can't eat your own food at home. So that's like a compliance that would be really hard, like to prevent people from cheating, but they try to make it, um, like really, they try to entice people. And yeah. so they weigh out everything down to like a 10th of a gram and they give them all these prepackaged meals. So there's, there's undergraduates that get hired to like work in that kitchen and make all those diets, which is pretty cool. I never, I didn't do that job. I did a different thing, but, um, yeah, so that's, if you don't have something like that, then you sort of do have to rely on the participants to follow their diet. So, it could very well be that they cheated and that's why they yeah. didn't have much of a difference. I mean, who knows? Possible, so, but there's no way to know that unless yeah. they had so you sort of, watching them every day. Yeah. You sort of just have to like, you know, and it, you know, if there's, if there are people that believe that the gluten-free diet is helping them, they probably will stick to it if they're recruited yeah. for this kind of thing. Um, and it sounded like they were a lot, it was a lot of young girls that wanted to lose weight which yeah, was a very, that's what I saw there is with a lot of young women who wanted to lose their weight and none of them were overweight. They said, <laughs> so yeah, that, that's really interesting. I mean, that's says something to the kind of mental health side of that. Cause you know, I've heard that before that mm -hmm. there'd be a lot of people who just want to do it, not necessarily because they're even sensitive, but because they think it'll help them lose weight for some reason. Yeah. And there's no evidence for that. So if you're out there, uh, wondering that um there i think there's been some some popular like self-help books about this and you know for one if you're making your own gluten-free stuff with like brown rice flour and millet and quinoa and you're eating all these vegetables and everything you might lose weight just because that's a much healthier diet but if you're just eliminating gluten and eating gluten-free packaged foods you're not going to lose weight because those packaged foods have a lot of extra fat in them and um, like sugar and binders and things like that. Cause if you've ever tried to bake gluten-free stuff, it's like baking with sand, nothing oh, yeah. sticks together. It's really hard to work with. Um, and so. My uh, sister has tried that once before. And I know a couple of other folks who haven't just like, it's a pain. It's a yeah. pain. In my day, they didn't have gluten-free food when I was doing mine and I had to bake everything from scratch. There was nothing, nothing available to buy. Um, uh, there may be a couple of things Whole Foods Market had, had pioneered, but it was nowhere near as widespread. Uh, so yeah, this is one of those like, oh, in my day, I had to walk uphill both ways naked in the snow and bake all my own gluten-free food. <laughs>
So none of those things happened. <laughs> um, Walk up the hill that, both ways naked in the snow. Have you ever heard those, that joke? Never I've, mind. I've heard that without the naked part. That's what made me stop. Okay. Just, yeah. Okay. I don't remember, but no, I've never done that. <laughs> just for the record, have never walked naked in the snow. <laughs> I hate snow actually. And when I walk in snow, I tend to wear 20 layers of everything, like a big puffy snow person. I, I hate snow a lot. <laughs> so super off topic, but we I had to okay. we had to set the record straight on that. <laughs> okay. So so they put them in these two groups um, where first one group was was eating gluten. Oh, so anyway, I gotta back up. So they were in gluten-free, allegedly, and then they challenged them. That's like feed something as a test with this uh, gluten containing granola bar that was baked specially for the study. And then there was a granola bar that was baked to have to be identical in appearance and taste, but just not have gluten. Um, Which, so that is a trick to do by itself. Yeah, apparently they accomplished it. They got the recipe from somebody else. So um, it was tried well, the and recipe true. recipe was kindly provided by Professor Knut, uh, wait a minute, Knut Luden. University of Oslo. Nice. Uh, yeah, so they're so they zero out the gluten and then they give the first group some gluten granola bars. They have to eat two of them a day. And then the other group gets the placebo bar. Then they do a washout where they just eat the gluten-free diet, but they don't have any granola bars to just like, you know, for one week, um, for seven days. And then after that, then they would flip the group. So this is the crossover. So then the third in period three, after the washout, the group that had the gluten bars had the placebo bars and then vice versa. Mm. And then after they complete uh, those things, so that was 21 days of the trial. So they basically do, uh, they did two weeks on the diet just to prove that they responded to it at all. Right. Then they split them into these two groups, which was, uh, I guess, two weeks and then seven day washout and then another two weeks of switching. So the gluten yeah, in this, yeah, the, the gluten challenge was from the granola bar and then they ate the gluten-free diet otherwise. So, yeah, I think the, um, I think the three periods, like it says like T equals zero and T equals seven and T equals 14. So I think they were the three periods were seven days each. So that oh, okay. one days total um, in the periods, but that doesn't preclude everything. Yeah. Like consented to two weeks of a gluten-free diet. Um, yeah. So, oh yeah. The, the initial screen had the two weeks of gluten-free diet and then the granola bar thing was seven days. Then the washout well, was seven days. Then this the, is what, this is what yeah. I'm wondering. Is it like participants consented to two weeks of a gluten-free diet. Does that mean that they were actually already gluten-free or does that mean that they consented for two weeks during the periods of the trial? I think it was just that they consented to doing, hold on, let me find that spot so I can see what you're seeing. I'm, I'm looking at the flow chart and I noticed participants consented to two weeks of gluten-free diet, but that doesn't necessarily mean Uh, oh wait no i see it with the flow chart yeah it's consented to two weeks and then in the bullet after that they had 16 did not improve yeah that's right so yeah, yeah that do a two-week thing first and then go into the into the cross trial 
Yeah, they had to make sure that the people were actually going to respond to the diet at all, whether it was subjective or or objective. Yeah, which, by the way, did you notice the typo in the flowchart? No. <laughs> where does it say? 16 did not improve. Oh, really? Wait, where? Ah. <laughs> improve. <laughs> you had an extra yeah. O in there. It makes it yeah. <laughs> Yeah, so you have so your brain has to pronounce it like that. It's required. 16 did not improve on the trial. <laughs> and they needed to have a greater than 25% improvement in symptoms based on some subjective scale. So well, no, it wasn't it wasn't a subjective scale. I think they were using that um that VAS thing. Um yeah, they were using that VAS thing, I think. Um it's like, what is your, what is your baseline score in the VAS symptoms? And the, then the score at the beginning of phase one, after you did that gluten-free diet. Cause that's oh, I mean, one. So, when I say subjective, I mean that their, their participant reported like self-reported rather oh, yeah, than yeah. a blood test. Yeah, so, okay. yeah. So it's based on self-reported symptoms. And then that the VAS is just a visual analog scale. So I think they're just basically rating themselves on a one to 100 scale. Yeah. And they, and they do for the different symptoms that are typically associated with the gluten sensitivity. Yeah. Yeah. Abdominal pain, bloating, gurgling, diarrhea, farting, <laughs> constipation. No, I had to say it. <laughs> nausea, dyspepsia, incomplete evacuation after a toilet visit. You didn't empty your bowels. Yeah. It's like when you're, when you're done, but you're like not done all the way. Oh yeah. Yeah. And burping. Yeah. See, we're apes. We think poop is funny. It's what it is. You know, <laughs> we've been laughing at pooping and farting since we were in the trees. Poop <laughs> it's <joke>. how it is. <laughs> Bring out the poop jokes. Okay. Yep. So, uh, yeah, like back to the thing. So then they had the thing and then I guess they, they filled out the questionnaire at the beginning and at the end, I have to look at that again. I forgot how they did that. Um, yeah, I think it was at the beginning and at the end because they did it pre. So they did it. The oh, it was daily. Oh, it was actually daily. daily. Oh. Gastrointestinal symptoms were recorded on day one and day 13 during that two week phase one thing and then daily during the randomized trial. So that's a lot. Oh, wow. OK, so gastrointestinal symptoms are measured. OK, so they they re recorded them every day. Um, the, 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 the 10 symptoms. And then they also looked at mental health, which were these scales that I've never heard of. Cause I think I have never, we, yeah, I've never heard of them before either. We use different ones in the U S. Um, so maybe these are just ones that are popular over there. This um, is, so they asked them that, what is it? There's, um, mental health was the short form 36 and the Warwick Edinburgh mental wellbeing scale. Um, in phase one, we also asked 18 questions about body perception. The questions mm. were identical to questions from the 11 years follow-up in the, in the Danish national birth cohort. Mm. So they follow their people a lot and measure stuff about them. Yeah. They try to make some longitudinal studies, I think. Mm. Oh, I see why, how they were able to do it daily. They texted the participants and yeah. then they had to respond to the text. So that's very clever. I wonder, so I had a job when I was in undergrad where I had to call people on the phone and ask them what they ate the day before for studies. 
It was very interesting. And it was actually, yeah, it was a pretty hard job. It took me like three months to get the hang of it. You know, it was, it was a good, like serious, uh, you know, undergrad work study kind of thing. And uh, I think they would have loved to have texting because back then it was just a phone, like cell phones were not even really commonly used yet at that point. I think that was 2003 that I did that. So there, there were phones, there were definitely cell phones, but they were like not they were not as cool as the phones we have now. They couldn't oh, do yeah, anything. No. I remember that from when I, gra- that was right around when I graduated um, high school. Yeah. Or so it was just like, um, yeah, we had, we had cell phones, but it sure as heck wasn't it what it was now. Wasn't what yeah. it was now. There we go. Yeah. I was like a little call center chick. I had like the headset with the thing. <laughs> and I was like, what did you have for breakfast? Do, 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 type, do, type, type, type. It was very cool. Um, <laughs> And that software they had, I would have killed for that. It was like $6,000 software or something for research, but it was, it had like every food imaginable in it. So you'd type this list and like, so you'd type like coffee, egg, biscuit, whatever. And, and then it would search your, your strings and then it would pull up and then you pick the amount and it would calculate like all the nutrients that were in that thing you ate based just off of your search string and your amount. And you would have to, the hard part was like helping people over the phone estimate the quantity. That was the toughest part. Like where I'd say, well, how much, you know, they, oh, I had a cup of coffee. Like, well, how much is a cup, (laughs) you know? And then they're like, oh, you know, like a, like a, you know, a big mug of, okay. So that's actually three cups (laughs) or whatever it was, you know, all that kind of stuff. So that was what was hard about it. But man, that was super useful. I used to sneak in there and enter my homemade recipes into the program to get like the nutrient information. <laughs> so nice. Yeah. So then, so then I, they had, I, I have no idea what FODMAPs are. I, I oh. notes here that I had is like, what the heck is a FODMAP? It is a type of starch. So FODMAPs, this is really interesting. Um, And they mentioned it in the background, I think in the paper, or maybe it was in the conclusion. So a FODMAP stands for fermentable oligosaccharides, disaccharides, monosaccharides, and polyols. So they are short chain carbohydrates (laughs) that tend to be poorly absorbed in the intestine and bacteria that live in your gut eat them. They like them a lot. So, um, and in inulin, if you've ever seen that in, in an ingredients list, that's a FODMAP, it's a starch. And yeah, so a lot of foods we really like a lot have a lot of FODMAPs in them. So, and it's also, uh, something that's common in foods that also have gluten. Like there's a lot of FODMAPs in wheat. So when you, reduce gluten, you also inadvertently reduce FODMAPs. And so those are, that's like one of the the open questions in this field is like, is the explanation behind FODMAP? Yeah, exactly. Is the explanation, is it that? And so there's an app that you can get called the FODMAP app. And it was developed by some medical school, I forget where, but they're like a well-known medical school. And they make it so you can plan a FODMAP, like a low FODMAP diet. There's a test you can get done where you eat like some sugar water and then you blow into a bag every half hour and it measures the gases that come out of you, like how much hydrogen, how much CO2, like all the different things you're exhaling. And it um, can tell you, you know, which kind of FODMAP you're sensitive to. And then you can use the app to like figure out how to eliminate it from your diet. It's pretty cool. So 
Um, I have had that test done before. It's a long day. You have to sit there for like eight hours and my it's, it's no fun. Um, but yeah, it's a very restrictive eating plan, but so is being gluten-free. So yeah, I think there's an open question is, is it the gluten causing it or is it the FODMAPs? So they, their, their bar in the study was like low in FODMAPs, I think just to try to rule out, um, that as an influence. Well, and I mean, they may have inadvertently found out you know, from, from the negative result that you mentioned before, they may have averted, inadvertently found out that, oh, maybe it's not the gluten. Yeah, because if the gluten-free bar was low in FODMAPs when they challenged with gluten and the people felt fine, it was possibly because that was not the offending compound. So, yeah, yeah so it's really, these kinds of trials are very hard to do. And so it's exciting when one of them comes out. So it's, you know, I, I have personal opinions about the gluten-free, the, the non-celiac gluten-free thing. And they mentioned at the beginning, they had a statistic that I thought was actually quite surprising given my personal experiences. So survey-based studies show that those following a gluten-free diet are more likely to be female, well-educated and younger than 50. And I was surprised by that because all of the people that I know now who are in the non-celiac gluten sensitivity club are all over 50. They are women and they predominantly have, um, also, uh, trauma, like psychological trauma and autoimmune issues. So interesting. Yeah. I, I mean that this is like sample size of three based on my highly biased sample of people in my life, like friends and family, (laughs) but it's, it is interesting to me that, uh, that this gets like that, that, that group of people is attracted to this. So I was surprised that it was young, uh, young people. Yeah. Oh, well, this is also a difference between Europe and here too. So who knows? True. True. Yeah. I mean, I was one of the female, well-educated, younger than 50 folks who did it. And maybe that's just something that's like, that's in, well, they cited which surveys they're talking about. So let's see, were these done in the United States? One and where, two. Where were the surveys again? Cause I can't. Oh, they cite it was, it's like the second sentence of the introduction. Oh, I see. And then, okay. So Netherlands was one of them. And then the other one was done. I'm looking for the, where are the authors located? Right, but studies um, one and two. Yeah, citations so, one and two. So genetic lifestyle and health related characteristics in adults of adults without celiac disease who follow a gluten-free diet. Number two and population-based study. Oh yeah, those were also UK. Yeah, UK and Netherlands were what those surveys they cited yeah. were based on. So so maybe over the pond, there's more female, well-educated young, youngins that are interested in this. Because over here, it seems like to be predominantly baby boomer women. Those are my um, people. <laughs> we'll have to see. There's not nothing in there about about U.S. stuff, so it's it, it yeah tell for sure. Yeah. Interesting. Well, yeah. I mean, I have always suspected that the non-celiac gluten sensitivity is not really the gluten, and that it's either yeah. you feel you feel better because you feel like you're doing something for your health, 
And that can make your mood improve and can make your digestive symptoms improve because they're linked a lot of the time. Right. Um, Or you could be uh, uh, eliminating FODMAPs or you could just be eating better overall. That's distinctly possible because it's really just hard to tease apart, you know, what is what is actually (laughs) making me feel better. Yep. I mean, honestly, I have tried a lot of special diets because of my own health uh, history. And in many cases, I thought diets were working and then uh, they would not be after a while. And a lot of it, I looked back and it was sometimes it was medication that I was on that was actually doing it. And I was ignoring that, or I felt emotionally better because I felt like, okay, I'm finally eating right. And so I don't have to be scared of symptoms anymore. And I would calm down, but the symptoms would always come back eventually. So, uh, and you know, it is the case, um, that the people that I know have certainly not cured their health issues as a result of eating this way. I think it, it does seem like it's psychological that it gives them some kind of soothing effect. Um, but it doesn't necessarily mean anything. In yeah, and, I mean, it's one of those things because it, just because it feels good doesn't mean it is good. Doesn't mean it's bad either, but it doesn't mean it's doing yeah. good. But it's like, yeah. no, I get, I get what you're saying with like the medicines and what have you. It's like a, a good, a good friend is, um, he's been called pre-diabetic. The thing is, he's like skinny as a rail. Um, so it's hmm. like he, he do, and he doesn't eat a whole lot of sugar to begin with. So it's just kind of hmm. like that doesn't make any sense. And of course, then we're looking at it. Well, like you're taking a medication that kind of throws the blood work. Oh yeah, for sure. So, I so mean, get, get yourself off of that medication. You'll probably be fine. So <laughs> yeah, steroids can cause diabetes. Um, my, my cat that I was giving insulin to before we started the show actually has diabetes that was caused by steroids from treating yeah. IBD. So it can totally happen. When I was on prednisone for my condition, uh, they had to stick me in, in, in the finger for the glucose test every day. And I was like, man, I have mad respect for diabetics. That was very unpleasant. Like for three weeks, I had to do that. I couldn't imagine doing it every day for my whole life. It would yeah. be a nightmare. So, um, well, that's getting better for people with the, like, if you have the Dexcom thing or something like that, because mm-hmm. I do know a couple of folks who are diabetic who have the Dexcom thing now. And oh, okay. Beep, done and on, on your way. Is it, is it like a, like, um. Uh, it's like a needle that's in them all the time. Yeah, it's, a little, it's a little pad that's like in your arm instead of in mm. your in your finger, and you just hold your phone up to it, and it's wow. a signal to your phone of what your glucose levels are. That's cool. Yeah, man. Uh, this yeah, is not medicine. an endorsement of Dexcom, by the way. It's just something I I know about from other from other. Yeah. People, by the way, but if they'd like to give us money, we'll happily accept it. I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> But yeah, I think in terms of like the results of the study, it's probably table three that really just tells the whole, mm-hmm. the whole story of their negative result. Yeah, um, I'm going to try to find table three because I thought that was very helpful at the end. Yeah, that, that's the one that really seals it with the text. And of course, the figure right below it, figure two is another one They just yeah. that just seals it right there. It makes it very obvious that yeah, there wasn't actually any difference because of the gluten. And uh, I'm, I'm assuming you'll link this article in the video description, yes. but um, it's open source, like open source, uh, open access. So you can see all of the stuff we're talking about as mm-hmm. we should have said that at the beginning. Um, well, so you can I mean, follow along. Yeah. 
yeah, when you do your little intro, mention it in the beginning. So, um, so yeah, uh, basically it, it could be that the, the kids cheated on their diets. That's entirely possible. It could be, um, let's see. They had a, they had a couple of things. I'm trying to find their limitations. Okay. So they did not clinically control the gluten-free diet by measuring gluten peptides in urine to like prove that they really weren't eating gluten uh, or administering food frequency questionnaires where you actually ask the kids what they specifically ate. Like that dot, that job that I had where I had to call people. Right. Um, that's another way that you can measure diets. Um, the 24 hour recall is what that's called in the, in the business. And then food frequency questionnaires are another way where you have them fill it out, uh, what they ate every day, like keeping a food journal. And so they, um, they didn't want to ask them to do that. And I, I totally respect that because that's very tedious and it would be, it's hard enough probably to get them to follow the diet, getting them to follow the questionnaire. It would probably take away from compliance to the diet because you only have so much energy in your head, especially when you're young uh, to like manage all of that stuff. Yeah. That's a lot. So they didn't do that. Um, yeah. They didn't assess formally for uh, ulcers or IBS. Right. Um, they just asked if they had it, but they didn't actually look, but that seems like it may not have mattered given that they got no difference. Um, it, it may not have mattered at all. Although I think I'm looking at their, um, because they have the baseline demographics. So like VAS score at the beginning of phase one, um, which it's, not really labeled in the flow chart all that well where phase one started and this must now come to think of it um <laughs> uh it was before the it was between hold on i'm trying to find the number of people it was between the 50 uh it was at it was between 273 and 54 so the 54 were the ones who did the two-week thing oh okay okay yeah that's right. And then, no, yeah, it says 16 about. did not improve and then three yeah. dropped out without, had to do it. Uh, <laughs> three dropped out without specific reasons. So yeah, the 54 did the screening. Right. And I'm, the, re the reason I'm wondering is because I noticed like the average VAS score after the, with the, um, with the gluten group and the control group ended up being the same, but it also ended up being about 20, which is actually the same as the baseline before before they um started the the um the crossover yeah you notice that so that's why i'm wondering did you did you have a cheat there going on because that was mm. that was pre pre doing gluten and i'm it's not clear to me whether or not they were totally gluten free when they did when they did the cross trial you know yeah they may not have all been uh, hold on. Let's see what the gluten funen cohort answered. Uh, so, yeah, cause that's not what's clear to that's, that's, what's not clear to me is whether or not during that randomized controlled trial, they were gluten-free with the exception of whether or not they got the granola bars, which would be a clean, it would be a very clean experimental setup if that's the case, but yeah. I have to look. Well, they had the two no, weeks. Okay. It says, yeah, it says here the participants followed a strict gluten-free diet throughout the entire trial. Yeah, that's so true. Okay. Yeah. Beforehand, like before the study, I don't know if all of them had been following a gluten-free diet. Right. Necessarily. 
but this but the fact that it's that low again does make me wonder you know did you cheat mm. yeah let me look although then again that. then again it also could be the psychology thing you know oh yeah it's it's interesting that it drops during the 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 washout i when i saw that i thought that it was the psychology because it was like oh i'm not i'm not getting the special granola bar anymore yeah and so they probably oh yeah i didn't see that i didn't see i didn't see what you're talking about because yeah that's the kind of mind game thing right there where you're yeah the wa the washout i think is is there's a definite psychological effect during that in between part but what were you saying about the drop maybe i thought you were talking about that well no i what struck me was i was thinking about it from the fact that in the in the table one the baseline demographics they show the vas symptom score at baseline which is 19 21 and 21 mm -hmm. um and then they show it at the beginning of phase one, which was that uh, that gluten free, that gluten free diet thing that they mm -hmm. started. It was before they started the the randomized section, and that's in the fifties, which is presumably, if I'm well. Oh, am I, I see. Am I, am I correct in the interpretation that it's presumably better to have a higher number? No, a uh, higher is worse because okay. that means your symptoms are high on the discomfort scale. Okay, thank you. Yeah, uh, I had it. I had it backwards in my head. Yeah, so there, there, it was okay. higher at the beginning so, of phase one. If it was higher than before, they okay. Then that actually may make some sense because it was higher before they started going totally gluten free in the trial. Yeah, so even even being on any kind of special diet can can make you think there's an improvement right so they, yeah they probably, that's okay then that makes sense to me then then in the controlled experimental space that you know it, the numbers would be generally lower and closer to the closer to the baseline to begin with i think yeah they said that they said this actually somewhere in the paper i have to find it because i remember reading it yeah okay so they said in phase one the non-blinded part most of the participants had an improvement in their GI symptoms on the gluten-free diet. However, in phase two, when the study was blinded, we were not able to reproduce the findings. Right. So that's in section 5.2. Okay. Okay. That, yeah. That's helpful. Yeah, yeah. So that, I mean, that's kind of a smoking gun to me, unless they can point out some kind of confounding factor. I think this is this is a pretty good study that you could do on this kind of thing. Like they oh, yeah. controlled for as much as they could afford to control. Um, and yeah, so overall, I think this is a well done study. I, I do have very strong doubts that most of the people who think they're gluten intolerant actually are. Yeah. And that, that seemed in my head, like a much more controversial thing to say, and I don't know what the what the viewers of this or listeners of this show will think of my opinion on that, but almost everybody that I know who doesn't, I know someone who actually has celiac and it is as bad as my ulcerative colitis was. Like it is definitely not in her head. It's very ambiguous or ambiguous intent. It's very intense. Um, and she, uh, she actually had to have separate cooking cookware yeah. that could not, not touch anything that gluten was cooked in there, there's um, another friend of mine who i has the same thing and he has celiac too and it's, he's talking about it it's like no i have to i have to cook everything in my own cookware because otherwise 
you know, yeah. get sick. Yeah, it's really, it's crazy that it, that that happens. And then when you have an actual allergy allergy, I guess there were four of them that tested positive for a wheat allergy. Mm. Um, and those were all, they had all actually been randomized to the placebo group, interestingly. So no, no. <laughs> it just kind of, that's how it fell. The, the four people that tested positive for that's a, wheat. That's a lucky thing there. I know. Right. <laughs> um, I, think, I think what I found funny was the only thing where they did get it, like a significant difference between, um, the gluten group and the, and the placebo group was in one of the 10 things that they were scoring. And it was basically failing to empty your bowels. Yeah. Yeah. That was, and you know, that can actually be very psychological because how your sphincter muscles work. Um, sometimes you can freak yourself out when you have issues like that. And, uh, stress can actually mistime that kind of thing. This has yeah. happened to someone that I know actually. Uh, and she even went to physical therapy to, and like, to learn how to poop again, like not, not, totally and it and it helped it like wow. actually helped her I'm yeah sorry. because like from like stre- like childhood stress and things like that you can that can become dysregulated um oh so, yeah no okay i know what you're talking about then yeah like they Similar made fun thing. of it on like i had I, i've told you privately i had encopresis as a kid which is pretty much the same thing you just get so stressed out for whatever reason um that you just can't go to the bathroom appropriately and don't yeah the bowel control develop at the same rate that's more of a thing for kids than anything but but yeah uh, and some some people it can last into adulthood and can be like a kind of a life-ruining thing to try to get a diagnosis when you know everything else tests negative and it's like really a brain thing and so that can be very invalidating to people where they're like but it's not in my head you know, they, they want a solution, but it's not that it's in your head that it isn't real. It's like literally in your head in that you're, you're, there's a, like a disconnect between like your perception of how your body's working and you can learn to like do it correctly. Um, they have, they, I always say, I try not to ever say like the unknown they, but there exists, uh, a, another kind of treatment that you can do biofeedback yeah. where you actually can like learn to, to, understand and you can see you know how your how your bowels are functioning and like learn it's really amazing that kind of stuff like i'm all about those things if that you could do them like drug free and surgery free because those things are i don't know i've been on a lot of bowel medications in my life and they're all terrible (laughs) so if you can they're not pleasant i i've been on a fair few myself though i think not as many not as many as you have but it's it's not at all yeah. And then GI surgeries is no picnic either. So that's, uh, uh, so that's how that cookie crumbles gluten-free or otherwise. <laughs> so <laughs> that's yeah, how the gluten-free cookie crumbles. Yeah, exactly. So I guess, is there anything else to say about this? No, I, I mean, I agree with you. It, admittedly, I, as I told you before it came on air, I didn't get the absolute chance to to read through everything, but I did skim it. And it was just like, man, this is actually a really, really good article compared to some of the other things that we've <laughs> Yeah, this, I think this one definitely wins the apple pie order award and, yeah. and glu- gluten-free crust, hopefully with the pie. Exactly, we can do yeah. that. Gluten-free crust on that apple pie order. Um, yeah. But yeah, and I apologize for, for viewers who are watching this on YouTube and, and see me yawning. It's been a quite a long couple of days, so I apologize. 
and a bit on video it had nothing to do with the quality of the article <laughs> i i'm a yawner too and sometimes i'm just like i swear i'm not bored my brain just needs oxygen i don't know why like maybe i'm bad at breathing or something i'm not sure but yeah no, i know that's it's funny how that is oh, oh. yawner well the next paper we actually have planned already um and is about cannabis Ooh. specifically cbd products and <laughs> labeling which should hit on all the juicy issues such as legalization and fda <laughs> oversight of supplements and all that jazz all the good stuff and so maybe we'll actually argue about something i'm excited <laughs> argued before but it's been polite yeah no i mean in general we usually agree but you know that's what happens so um great minds think alike right well not always not always i guess that is the point of the heterodox academy right is that great minds don't always think alike. isn't that their tagline that is yeah that, that yeah is, that is yeah. their tagline on the website yeah so foot foot in mouth on that one i shouldn't have said that <laughs> <laughs> no worries it happens yeah so um yeah so the next one will be about uh will be about the um, the whole CBD phenomenon, which I have many opinions about, and it'll be fun. <laughs> <laughs> that ought to be really interesting. I'm looking forward to it. Cool. All right. Well, I hope that we will see you on the next one, or, well, I guess we won't see you because it's recorded, but hope you will see us for the next episode and this one as well. I don't make any <laughs> sense. So signing off, right? <laughs> you got CBD or a gluten-free cookie, maybe. Or a gluten-free CBD cookie. Ooh, there you go. There you go. That's a combination. <laughs> I know that would that would uh, that would sell. I think that would totally sell because <laughs> there's a lot of crossover with the two markets. <laughs> I would say that would probably sell if it doesn't exist somewhere already. It, it probably does. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I think that's it, everybody. Everybody, stay curious. Bye. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Rogue Journal Club. If you want to suggest articles for the show, please consider becoming a supporter of shiasofia.locals.com. The link for the Locals community is available in the show notes. The Rogue Journal Club is a Shia Sophia production. Copyright 2022.